We are really, really blessed to be able to have Joni and Alexander lead our children's ministry and to really see that God continues to give us more and more and more young children. And remember, as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, let the children come to me. He was down on his disciples when they tried to keep the children away. So for you to say in this coming year, you could give yourself to the work of helping a child come to know the character of God and a personal relationship with Jesus, that'd be minutes well spent. So hope you will consider that. Big thanks as well to all of you who helped all across the scale of power-up clubs and hosting homes and feeding a bunch of kids all week a lot of really good food for all the folks who served at Power Surge and got to clean up in the rain and all that good stuff. We are really grateful for the body of Christ as we serve together. And it's fun for me because I get to be a youth pastor again for one week and then back. So one week is, is, is good. Hey, if you have a copy of the scriptures, how about uh, opening it up with me? If not, the scripture will be on the screen for you to be able to see. But if you have a copy of the Bible with you, open to Mark chapter 11, please. We are looking at the last week in the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And in these opening days of this last week in the life of Jesus, we've given particular focus to this concept of elevating Jesus in our city. Because as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was elevated in the eyes and the view of everybody in Jerusalem. People were excited about Jesus being there, and people who didn't know him were asking, who is this Jesus? And, and so how can we, as the body of Christ in Jacksonville, specifically Christian Family Chapel, how can we lift up Jesus in this city? And here's what we've learned thus far in a few recent weeks. First, we elevate Jesus in our city, this is by way of review, by living with a joyful, divine expectancy that every moment of every day is a purposeful part of God's unfailing and unfolding redemptive story. God is always working. There is no chance meetings. There's no, oh, I happen to see or I happen to run across. Anytime something like that happens, there ought to be a little bell in your head that goes, oh, see, this is what God, I didn't meet this person by accident. God is working in his way very purposefully. And, and that creates absolutely a great joy to begin a day with because, you know, the Bible says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Well, part of what we rejoice in is that when God made a day, it wasn't just to make a day. It was to make a day that had purpose, that, that every moment in that day would have eternal significance. And so who you see at lunch today, who you see tomorrow when you're walking the dog, the people you work with, the people that God has placed in your family, the strangers that you cross paths with, never think, oh, that was just by accident. It's not random. God is always working. And so you can enter into that with, man, today matters. In the big scheme of things, today really matters. You have that joyful, divine expectancy that every moment matters. Second, that 
when we live like that, then we can have this heightened sense of, we have a privilege to bless this city. And, and that not being ambiguous or fuzzy, to bless this city by praying for the people that God has placed around us, to listen to them, to eat with people, because eating with them identifies ourselves with them, to serve people, and then to share our story and his story. You heard Abby Lynn give her a one-minute story in this service over here. Somebody else gave their one-minute story over in the South. We had more than 130 folks get trained. And how do you share just your one-minute story as God crosses your paths with people? That's awesome. Do you have a story? Lots of you have a story. Have you thought through how you might tell it as God intentionally puts people in your path? That's how we can bless, and not only to tell our story, but to tell his story. Remember, he went into Jerusalem, and they, and they were going, who is this Jesus? And that's a question that gets asked all across Jacksonville. Who is this Jesus? And there's a lot of uncertainty about him. And so please remember, coming up in September, the beginning of Alpha, uh, the opportunity for folks who have spiritual questions to not sit and just listen to somebody else yakety yak yak like here on a Sunday morning, but to listen to someone speak for a few minutes and then have dialogue and share what they're thinking and how they view things in life and have that opportunity for discussion, dialogue, and listening. If you know folks who have spiritual questions, they're wrestling with the questions of life and faith, come with them or share with them about the opportunity of Alpha. It's a great opportunity for spiritual dialogue to take place. So we bless our city. And then last two weeks, Tony very effectively has talked about, let's not be the fig tree that does no fruit, but that we would be elevating Jesus as we bear fruit, fruit of humility, fruit of forgiveness, fruit of love, fruit of generosity, and fruit of prayers of faith, asking God to do only what he could do. So I have used a lot of words in review, right? That's a lot of words. I understand that. You're like, here's what I want you to capture. We have the privilege to lift up Jesus in this city. Power Up Clubs was a, a packed week of doing that in one way, but that's a program way. Just going home to our neighborhoods, going to work, taking our kids to school, working out in a health club. Those are all opportunities to lift up Jesus as we bear fruit, as we bless, as we see every moment as a purposeful part. One more this morning from Mark chapter 11 of how we will elevate Jesus in this city. So if you're there, Mark chapter 11, verse 15, 16, and 17. It says, then they came to Jerusalem. So that's Jesus and the disciples. They've entered what we refer to as the triumphal entry. They've entered Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began, very wild scene here. He began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. 
Now, interestingly, that's, that's the text we're going to look at from Mark this morning. Interestingly, lots of us would refer to, and maybe it even says in your Bible, if you have one in front of you, the cleansing of the temple. Have you ever thought, that's a strange expression for what Jesus did, the cleansing of the temple. Because if I told my daughter, go clean your room, and she went up to her room, and she ripped off the covers of the bed, and tore the pictures off the wall, and threw them on the floor, and took her dresser and dumped it over, and then came down and said, Dad, I've cleaned my room. What would I think? I would think, you didn't clean your room, you, you trashed your room. So I find it fascinating that we conclude, oh, Jesus clean, cleansed the temple. Really? It seems like he trashed the temple from my perspective. So I want to answer as we begin looking at what God has to say from this text to why a trashing, because that's really what happened. I mean, tables are everywhere. Chairs are over and broken. People thought they were going to carry stuff through. No carry-on luggage. Everything gets checked at the door. It's, it's a mess. Why would we, why would a trashing be called a cleansing? So here's what we have to understand to answer that question. Some historical perspective about the temple. The temple, if we go back and look in the Old Testament, the temple was intended to be God's dwelling place. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were on the move, and so God had them construct what was called the tabernacle, a tent, a portable dwelling place. But then when they entered the land and the nation of Israel became established and great, then Solomon built the temple and it was to be where God would dwell among his people. So his dwelling place and then the people of God would come there to experience his presence. It was the temple that they would come to to make their offerings. It was the temple that they would come to to make their sacrifices. So the temple was to be the place where you would think, this is where worship happens. This is where offerings to God happen. This is where people come to pray. This is where people come to meet God. That was the intent of the temple. But what had happened... Well, if you go back to what we read in verse 15, when he entered, (laughs) he drives out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturning the tables of money changers and the seats of those who are selling doves. Does that sound like worship, prayer, and sacrifice to God? No, if you could paint a picture, what's this sound like? Yeah, this sounds like a flea market to me. Everybody has set up their merchandise on tables and everybody is trying to capitalize on all these quote-unquote tourists, people who are coming in from out of town to not go to Disney World, but to meet with God. But in order to have a sacrifice, if I've traveled 50 miles and I'm going to bring an animal with me the whole way, let's not bring, we'll just get an animal there for a sacrifice. Well, just like hurricane season in Florida, when a 25-cent bottle of water can be sold for $3, that's what's happening in the temple. People are capitalizing on what's happening and making profit off it. 
Have you, ever been to a theme, have you been to a theme park recently? We were, when we were on vacation last two weeks, we were up in Gatlinburg for some of the days. So we went to Dollywood. Some good roller coasters at Dollywood, actually. But typically, when you leave Dollywood, where do you exit? Through the gift shop. The land where every kid goes ballistic for the souvenir he needs, and a parent does not want it, but buys peace. You're not buying merchandise. You're just buying peace. It's all you're paying for. You're just paying for peace. And they're capitalizing on that. That's a sense of what's happening here. This is not a place of worship. It's become a place of business and profit, profit booths and extreme price gouging. And so Jesus shows up, sees what's going on. And this is not new. It's been going on for a long time. And he confronts it and trashes the place for what it was. So the cleansing was the intent of getting rid of what was going on so that what was intended to go on could go on. That's why it's called a cleansing. But have you ever wondered, what would that look like if Jesus showed up in Jacksonville? If he was going to like cleanse Jacksonville, like he showed up in Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he threw stuff over, what would that look like? See, it's a trashing that looks like a cleansing, but, but what would a, a cleanse look like in our city? To answer that, we need to know that the New Testament says this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is where? In you. So, in other words, in our day, in our city, where does God dwell? In the body of the, the believer. Not a, not a building. Not at the courthouse. Not on this campus. Where's God dwell? In this campus. This building, this tent, the body of the believer. You're not your own. He dwells within you, and you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, don't miss this, glorify God in your body. In other words, what was intended to happen in the temple in Jesus' day is intended to happen in this body in our day. You see the parallel? This is the temple of God now. So what would a cleanse look like, therefore, in our day, in our city? Well, the temple is the body of believer individually and corporately. In other words, he not only dwells within me individually, that as a church of believers, as a group of believers, we are corporately the body of Christ. You could say, if you can look up here for a moment, this is the body of Christ, and this is, those who have placed faith in Christ and born, this is the body of Christ. So if that's true, the cleanse would be of the people of God. Isn't that interesting? The cleanse would be of the people, if Jesus was to show up in Jacksonville and cleanse this city, it would not be for him to, we think, well, he, he would go 
tear down the strip clubs. Actually, he wouldn't go to the strip clubs to tear them down. He'd come to the, to the church and not to evaluate the buildings, but he would come deal with us individually. And he'd come deal with us corporately. It wouldn't be Jesus showing up and dealing with the general public. It wouldn't be Jesus showing up, we got to tear down the strip clubs. We need to kick out the drug dealers. I need to take on the ungodly and the irreligious people. That's not, do you hear me? Jesus would not be going after them. He'd be going after the people of God because that is the temple. And so a cleanse in our city would be of the people of God, not the general public or even a church building. We just got to get it out of our head that this room over in South, that that is the sanctuary. That's where God dwells. No. No, I was one of those kids who grew up and don't run in the church. It's God's house. Uh, Come on, read your Bible. The kid who has been born again is the house of God. The house of God is running around, actually. (laughs) So if he's going to cleanse it, he's not coming to go, well, y'all need to paint your walls and clean up your campus. He's looking at your life and my life and saying, are you glorifying God in your body? Is God being worshipped in your body? And is God being worshipped in this body. Now we're like, well, maybe we don't want Jesus to come cleanse Jacksonville. Because this is going to be very personal. You understand that? This morning, if I've been too vague, let me be as clear as I can. Jesus cleansing the temple on our day would be to come to you and I who would profess faith in Jesus with simply... What is in your life that is not glorifying to God and needs to be overturned and trashed? That's what it would be. So what would our part in that be? What would our part, since we are now the target, if you will, what would our part be? Well, let me make sure we understand. This is, don't tune out right now. The role of sin and guilt and condemnation in the life of everyone versus in the life of a believer, because there's a difference. When it comes to everyone, here's what Colossians 2 says. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. That's not language we normally use. Very simply, you were created to be one with God. But because of what I did, what we did, and who we are, our sin separated us from God. We were under condemnation because of our sin. And he made us, watch, this is what alive looked like. He made us alive together with him by doing what? 
by taking the sin that separated out of the way so that we could be restored to relationship with God. Now, how did he deal? How did he forgive us? It says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. In other words, because we're all liars and we're all thieves on some level, we deserve death, the penalty of sin. But he has canceled that debt out. How? which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in other words, when Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, but then died on the cross, it was just not a, I love you, and so I'm going to die for you. It was, I love you, and therefore I'm going to take the penalty for sin that you deserve upon myself. That's why we say the death of Jesus was a substitutionary death. He died in our place so that we who were guilty before God could be made alive together with him. Our sin forgiven, our debt taken out of the way. Therefore, Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is condemnation for whom? Those who are not in Christ Jesus. But if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the condemnation of sin. Is that not good news? Yeah, that's great news. Because I got to tell you, that I didn't always know that. But here is key, and this is not in your message memo, fill in the blank. You can write it down if you want, but you don't need to. When a child of God sins, they do not return to under condemnation. Yeah, I didn't know that. When I was 10, I understood that Christ had paid the penalty for my sin, and I knew my sins were many. Like that song we say, I knew my sins were many, even at 10. I was not the 10-year-old you wanted your kid to hang out with. I knew my sins were many. I believed that Christ had taken the penalty for my sin, and he forgave me. And I believed I was saved and going to heaven. But I still had a lot of bad habits, even at that age, and I would sin again. And when I'd sin again, you know what I thought? I thought I was guilty before God again, back under condemnation. And it wasn't just a theory. It was a very real fear. As a 11, 12-year-old, I literally remember coming home from school and thinking, Mom's supposed to be here. Sister's supposed to be here. Where are they? And then I'd been told about that Jesus was going to come back and people would meet him in the air. And I would literally, sound so silly right now, I'd literally like run around the house and look for piles of clothes. Because mom must have been taken with, and my sister gone in, and I'd been left behind. Why? Because I had asked Jesus to forgive me, but then I had sinned. So I was back under condemnation. That's not true. I am thrilled to tell you that that the scripture says they who are children of God, who were like this, but were made alive by faith, 
they do not return under condemnation when they sin. And here's why. Because the penalty for sin has been paid past everything I've done, present, my current sin, and future sin I will commit. It's been paid. I am no longer under condemnation. So you might think, so then sin doesn't matter? Uh, sin doesn't matter then if I've already been forgiven past, present, and future? You should have told me this. Uh, it does matter. What if I sin? Well, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, what does that mean? Walk in the darkness. Sin. Uh, I lie. I steal. I'm unkind. I'm selfish. If I say I have fellowship with him, but then I do that, we lie and we don't practice truth. In other words, that's not consistent with who I am. Uh, I've been made, I, I was far from God, but then I was made alive, made a child of God. His spirit dwells within me. And so when the spirit of God dwells within me, but then I sin, that doesn't add up. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's very important that when a child of God sins, they're not back under condemnation. But when a child of God sins, fellowship with God is broken. The relationship remains. Make sense? The, the best, if you're married, you'll get this very easily. Jackie and I celebrated 32 years this week. About 19 years ago, I spoke unkindly to her. And there, no, I don't have to go back 19 years. Maybe, well, you don't need to know how recent. But if you're married, ever speak unkindly to one another? Yeah, selfish. Put your put yourself in impatient, demanding, sometimes rude, short outburst of anger, walking in darkness, right? That I'm not bragging about this, I'm just acknowledging. I'm watch this, I am walking in the light. I am honestly admitting my sin to you right there. See, I always thought walking in the light was, well, if you walk in the light, in other words, if you live a perfect life, then you'll have fellowship with God. But the text says, if you say you don't have sin, what? Yeah, you're just a liar. And liars can never receive forgiveness because they'll never, they'll never admit it and confess it. So here's the good news. Though I have never, I've not loved Jackie perfectly, our relationship has remained. But there's been time where the temperature's been a little chilly, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you're married, you know exactly what I mean, where it's like, okay. A little awkward, not much conversation. You're waiting for the other person to fess up because it's their turn. And so I, I see that and I go, my relationship with God, my sin's been dealt with. 
past, present, future. I am not under condemnation. But when I walk in the darkness, I'm breaking fellowship. The relationship, he doesn't punt me out of the family. But the fellowship is broken. And how is it restored? Fellowship is restored by walking. This is the language of the text. Walking in the light of honest confession. Of agreeing with God. (laughs) You've made me one with you so that I would love like you love. And I've been unloving. You've made me one with you so I'd be holy like you, but I've been unholy. Uh, You've made me one with you so that I'd be patient like you're patient, and I've been impatient. We agree with God when our thoughts and attitudes and actions are not like him. And he lives in us, and he made us to be like him. See, that's confession. It's not simply, it does not help if I go to my wife and I say, Jackie, I was rude. She knows that. That didn't help. What's confession? Jackie, I was rude, and that is not who I've been made to be in Christ and how I am to treat you as your husband. Please forgive me. That's confession. And that's how relationship is restored with God when we agree with him regarding how we've thought, how we've spoken, what our attitude has been, what our actions have been, when they are not in line with who he made us to be as he is perfect and holy and righteous and loving and gracious and kind. So what's my role? This, is big, this has been the question. What is my role? If this, if this is the temple and Jesus is going to cleanse the temple, what's my role in that? It's to refuse to allow my sin to remain unconfessed. That I'll confess it to God and I will confess it to those who I've sinned against. Sometimes it's harder to confess it to God. Sometimes it's harder to confess it to someone else. It's easy to tell God, but it's humbling to go confess it to your child or to your spouse or to your parents or to a coworker or to a neighbor a sibling to say, I was wrong. The way I spoke was not who God made me to be, not the way he would want me to speak to you. Please forgive me. That's how fellowship is restored. So you get the, you get the point this morning? How's your fellowship with God? As a child of God, how's your fellowship? Is there... Sin unconfessed, because uh, let me give you a picture just real quickly here. When Jesus went into the temple and he trashed it, what did he turn over? Tables and chairs. 
You know what that gives me a sense of? When you set up a table, when you set up a chair, what have you done? You've gone, all right, this, this is kind of, this is how I'm going to function now. I'm settling in. And sometimes, well, not sometimes, unconfessed sin is settling in with sin in our life. There was a time when maybe you flew off the handle in anger and you felt conviction from the Holy Spirit and you immediately confessed it. But there was some point in your life where you flew off and you just went, this is who I am. Well, you know what you just did? You just set up a table and a chair in your life like they set up a table and chair in the temple. You allow sin to set up shop. It happens sometimes in marriages. People, two married, a married couple just gets, get comfortable. They're just, we're just short with one. We just don't speak kindly to one another. It's not a, oh, that one, right? It's, this is how we now function. And what Jesus is confronting, this is what I want you to, Jesus is very clearly confronting sin that is set up shop in their lives. Tables and chairs. That's why he's flipping them over. This was not a one-time deal. This is habitual. And that happens for lots of us. Unrighteous anger. Unkind words. Lust. They set up shop in our lives. There's like a table and a chair there. And we used to confess, but we don't confess anymore. It's just kind of, we just get comfortable with it. And that's what Jesus is confronting in the cleansing this morning. Because we are the temple. And sin should not set up shop in our lives. But we're not just individually the temple of God. We are, as believers, we are corporately the temple of God. What about that cleansing? Here's what Jesus says. If your brother sins, so this is not you now. If your brother sins, so brother, they're, they're a person who is in Christ as well. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Uh, just go back. What's that mean? It means if you go and you show him his sin and if he listens, meaning if he, if he confesses, right, if he confesses, if he says, you're right, that, that's not who God made me be and that's not consistent with the righteousness of Christ and he lives in me, then you've won. Fellowship has been restored. Uh, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. You're not going to gang up on him. You're going to confirm that this really is true. This is not just something that's being gossiped about. It's really, facts are confirmed. Clear sin, according to the scripture, is happening. You go. With what hope? That with two or three confirming the facts, there'll be confession. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So for the cleansing of the individual temple, it was what? Don't let sin go unconfessed. For the cleansing of the corporate temple, my part is to refuse to ignore known sin among other believers. Very important words. Known sins that I don't ignore. And we're talking about believers. We're not running around confronting those who do not profess Christ with their sin. They're simply living consistent with who they are. It's the person who has made a profession that I am now a child of God. I am one with him, but not living like it and setting up shop and not living like it. Then we refuse to ignore and we go to them pleading that they'll repent. The process, it's, you can write this down, you don't need to. All you have to go, it's, I'm going to almost repeat for you Matthew 18, 15 through 17. You go privately. If they don't listen, if they don't confess, you go with two or three. You go to confirm the facts. If they don't listen to a three, then you tell it to the church. At the chapel, that literally means we invite those who are not members of CFC to leave and we share with those who have entered into membership here at the chapel a person who has been approached privately with two or three repeatedly asking for them to confess and repent. And if it's not, then we share it. Very important. Not to shame. The goal here is not to shame. That's not why we name a person in a sin chapel. It's not to shame, it's to involve more in rescue. Here's the crux of the matter. Do you believe sin destroys a person's life? Yes or no? Okay, if you believe sin destroys, what would be the most unloving thing to do? Just to stay silent and let it go. But if you believe sin destroys... It's not unloving to go. It's unloving not to. Can I be honest? When I first came to the chapel, I was a school teacher in town. I came here, and I heard this. I was like, I've never seen this happen in a church. And first reaction is like, whoa, that seems like, is that really loving? Aren't we supposed to be loving? And it was understanding the reality of sin and what it does to a person and what it does to relationships, what it does to a family, that actually saying, well, it's none of my business is unloving. Now, it's to other believers, and it's to folks that we have spoken to privately and we've pled with two or three. I'm going to jump right to here because we're not shaming. Uh, one person was evolved. Three people are involved. We tell it to the church, though, that hopefully now three, four hundred people will be pleading for confessions so that fellowship would be restored. And Jesus says, if they, if they listen to no one even, if they won't listen to even the church, 400 people, then remove them from the body. Why? Why? Why would you remove them from the body? 
Well, there's a church in the New Testament in the city of Corinth that isn't doing this. And here's what Paul writes to him. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality, so that's sin, among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist, does not exist even among the Gentiles, uh, that someone has his father's wife. That's the sexual immorality. And Paul's going, that, that hardly happens outside the church. It's happening inside the church by a person who professes Christ. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. They haven't done what Jesus said. Why not? Why not? What's the arrogance? The arrogance is the Bible says remove them, but we think, we think it'd be better to allow them to stay. The arrogance is to say, I know what God says, but I think. The arrogance is to say, I know that God says this, but I think this. And here's, here's the real killer of that arrogance. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Meaning what? Meaning where there's a body of believers and there is known sin and the rest of the people ignore it, then other people watching go, why would I deal with sin in my life? And unconfessed sin is like rabbits. It multiplies. That's true individually and it's true corporately. Unconfessed sin will multiply into other unconfessed sin, not only in your own life, but in the lives of others. So if we tell it to the church, not to shame, but to involve, and 400 people plead, and there's still no confession, we remove from the body, not to punish, but to protect, and very specifically, protect the purity of the body. Humbly, we do that. I was so struck in my study this time. I always thought about this, this wild moment of Jesus flipping tables and throwing chairs. And I think that was true. But it hit me this week. When he did that, he did that in the context knowing that he was going to take the punishment for that sin upon himself days later on the cross. So his cleansing was not a, I'm mad at you. His cleansing was, I love you. And I want you to walk in the righteousness that you've been saved to. So I want to invite the men to come forward and, and I want us to remember the death of Christ that Jesus was facing even in this cleansing. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper, there's two elements. And Chuck, if you could come up here for a moment so I can grab one. Thanks. You're going to be passed a cracker broken and a cup 
full of juice. And it's simply a reminder. The cracker, and guys, you can pass things. It's a reminder of the, the body of Christ broken so that we could be forgiven. The blood of Jesus shed so that we could be restored to relationship with God. It's his death that is the means by which you and I are cleansed. Our part is what? Confession. So I want to give you a few moments as the guys are passing. Just quietly there in your seat. Would you examine yourself? Any unconfessed sin in your life that you would confess to a loving and gracious, merciful God who would forgive you? Invite him to search your heart to reveal anything that needs to be confessed to restore fellowship. Take a few quiet moments. The elements in your hand there are a reminder that God loves us. And he has offered forgiveness to those who will cry out to him. And so I want to invite you with these reminders in our hands that, that we declare together what is true about us and what's true about him as well. Let's declare this together. Stronger than darkness, new. 
with me now as an expression of gratitude for our merciful and gracious forgiving God. Let's take together. Would you stand with me? Father, we stand together in this moment to say thank you. Thank you for sending your son to be the payment for our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience even to the point of death on a cross. Thank you for restoring us and pouring your spirit into us so that we might be the temple, the presence of God. I pray now as we go from here, where we go home, we go to lunch, we go to work, we go into our neighborhoods, Lord, would we go and be the presence of Christ where people in meeting us might meet you. They might know of your patience and your grace and your kindness. Would we be a cleansed temple that the presence of Christ would fill this city that you, Lord Jesus, would be elevated in this community, that they would see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven. Thank you for your great grace and the riches of your kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for being here. I want to remind you that we have a guest reception for any of you who are new with us. If we can pray for you in some way, it'd be really our privilege to pray for you. And that there is Bluebell ice cream available for all in the courtyard. God bless. Have a great day.